Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. I want to start with a little story of what happened to us on Saturday down where we live. It'll tie in later on with what we're uh, talking about. I've shared this with a few people. It's one of those amazing things. Uh, when you think of what Mike shared with this woman, Wiselin, it's some same sort of idea. We were we were in Walmart on uh, Saturday, and we were at the self-checkout, and we were just going to go up to the machine to check out, and Gloria realized that the piece of clothing she bought for her granddaughter was the wrong size, so she had to go back to the bin and uh, exchange it. So I went and stood in the aisle by the checkout and said, well, I'll just wait here. Uh, I actually walked around the produce uh, section for a minute or two, then I stood there and waited, and uh, Bruce Poitavan from Zambia walked up right then. Uh, a thousand people in, in uh, Walmart, and uh, Bruce Poitavan walked up face to face. He was looking for Marilyn, his, his wife. So, uh, One of those things that you could never orchestrate. Uh, if I had been anywhere else in the store, if we anything else had happened, it would never happen. But there's uh, Bruce face to face. They'd just flown in from uh, from Zambia. And uh, so it was uh, one of those divine appointments where you recognize the Lord is in control. And I'm sure we've had all uh, some sort of that experience in our life at times where you just realize that beyond circumstance, it's just uh, God's hand in these things. So we want to look at uh, chapter 1 and uh, from verse 7 and down to chapter 2, to the end of chapter 2, if we get that far. And so just to review a little bit, and we'll touch on this again in a few minutes, but our approach to Scripture, to what we call the exposition, what does it mean? The interpretation of Scripture is uh, historical, grammatical, and literal. And so, uh, to whom was it written? What is the setting? What did those people understand as it was written to them? That's an important thing. Uh, One of the things, you may be familiar with the emergent church. Um, One of the things that they would espouse is that uh, Scripture means to you what it means to you, and you decide what it means at this time and moment that it's it's fluid, and you just... uh, Take what it means. Brian McLaren, one of the leaders, lived somewhere here in Florida. Of course, his grandfather was an assembly missionary in Angola, uh, but the emergent church would espouse that. It's just uh, whatever it means to you is what it means. That's how God speaks to you. But it's far better to have a, a principle or principles of interpretation where you say, what did it mean to them? And then grammar is important. Words mean something and uh, literal meanings. Now, having said that, we're going to look at visions. These are eight visions that that Zechariah saw in one night. And strangely enough, that one night was February the 15th. So Saturday this week will be the anniversary. So it was in on February the 15th, 519 B.C. So if my math is right, uh, 2518 years ago. Our math teacher can work on, on that, but I think that's, uh, that's what it works out to. So the anniversary will be on February the 15th on Saturday is when he had these eight visions all in one night. So when we say, yes, we look at it and take it literally, we recognize that in a literal approach there are 
There is imagery, there's figures of speech. Uh, there is exaggeration in Scripture at times. We call that hyperbole, where uh, exaggeration is used. Sometimes there's rhetorical questions where the answer isn't expected. It's just, this is what it is. And, and so there are figures of speech. And we, uh, we would understand when we look at this type of literature, apocalyptic literature it would be called, prophecy, that uh, there's going to be imagery in there that's going to be different and distinct and, and unique uh, to the this, this subject. And so, and so often when God reveals the future and even uh, talks about heaven, things that we have no, nothing to relate to, uh, there's imagery or uh, in particular about heaven, God tells us what's not there more than he tells us what's there because we can relate to what's not there more than we can relate uh, to what is there. And so here in these, these visions, we're going to see some, uh, some imagery uh, in here. So let's read in chapter 1, and we'll read from verse 7 to the end, and then we'll look at chapter 2, Lord willing. Zechariah 1, verse 7. Let me just say this is five months after the first six verses. So he gave the first six verses. That was his first sermon, and then he has these eight visions. On the 24th day of the 11th month, month, which is the month of Shebat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido, the prophet. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow. And behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. And I said, My Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro through the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you were angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered, The angel who talked to me with good and comforting words, so the angel who spoke with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease. For I was a little angry, but they helped, but with evil intent. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Again proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities again shall, or shall again spread out through prosperity, and the Lord will comfort Zion, and I will again choose Jerusalem. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? So he answered me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them, to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. So... If you read that, you might be thinking, well, what does that mean? What's it all about? Now, remember, uh, 
God is speaking in a vision. So you remember in Hebrews chapter 1, God at various times and in various manners or ways spoke in times past uh, to the fathers through the prophets. And so there was various means. Sometimes God did it orally, uh, directly, uh, and sometimes he did it through dreams or visions. And God is not limited. Now let me just say, I don't think God speaks to us through dreams today in particular. Sometimes people will expose the fact that your dreams have meaning. I think the meaning is you probably ate cheese before you went to sleep or something happened that day and you think about uh, those, those things. I think God has revealed his will through his word and I think we have the complete revelation of, of God. Uh, and so, but God spoke in times past through, uh, through things like this. And so these eight visions occur in this one evening of February the 15th in the year five, uh, 519 uh, BC. And so in here you have these four horses. So again, are they literal? Well, it's in a dream and a vision. And I think he's perhaps depicting uh, something that's going on as opposed to the fact that we've got to think of four literal horses perhaps roaming around in the unseen unseen world. But these horses go out and they, they depict in this scene the... Uh, the awareness of God of what's going on, the fact that he knows what is going on. Uh, You see hints of that in other places. In the book of Ezekiel, you have these wheels that go to and fro uh, through the earth. You have in Revelation chapter 5, the seven spirits of God which are sent uh, throughout uh, the earth. And so there is this sense in which though God is omniscient, he knows everything, there is a sense that he depicts that at times in sort of physical or visible ways we can understand. Uh, For instance, in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, it says, let us go down and see. Well, why would God have to come down and, and see what's going on? God is omniscient. He knows all these things. But sometimes the language is used so that we can sort of appreciate or understand this, this thought of the omniscience of God. You remember in the 139th Psalm, uh, David could say, if I go out or I come in, you know, not even a word in my mouth, but you know it altogether. Where am I going to f- go in the world to flee from your, your spirit? No matter where I go, you are there. And so we understand the omniscience of God, that he knows everything. But it's portrayed Uh, sometimes in this type of way, that these horsemen are going out and looking around. They come back and they give a report. Now, they're among the myrtle trees. Uh, Agriculturally, there are symbols in Scripture associated with Israel, and the myrtle tree is found in a hollow, usually in a hollow place, and it, it really, in some ways, depicts Israel and its humility. And so, of course, the olive tree, the vine, uh, the fig tree, all represent Israel, but the myrtle tree, Israel in its, in its humility. But there is, uh, with these, these horsemen, there is the angel of the Lord in verse 11. And generally, uh, that phrase means it's the Lord Jesus Christ in an Old Testament appearance. What the 
we would call a Christophanes, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, It's not because he was an angel, but that's a title that's given to him, the angel of the Lord. Uh, Sometimes uh, he appeared in human form, uh, such as uh, he did to Abraham, uh, Genesis chapter 18. It's the Lord that appeared to him, but he was in human form. But sometimes it's in a different form. Joshua saw him in splendor as the captain of the Lord's hosts. And so here is uh, the Lord Jesus in an Old Testament appearance. Now there's another angel here, one who is talking to Zechariah. So you have these horsemen. Uh, Now these horses are not the same horses by color or process as you find in Revelation chapter 6. The horse, the four horsemen of the apocalypse as they're often referred to. Those horses bring death and destruction. The first one brings the Antichrist and then the other three bring the results of his rule and reign. So these these horses are going out or horsemen are going out gathering information. They come back and they say at the end of verse 11, the whole earth is resting quietly. Now, you'd have to think that that's only uh, the Gentile world based on uh, what he says later on. The Gentile world is at, is at rest. And so uh, you come back with this report. Now, just a, another thought from this that ties in with where the Lord Jesus is seen in Revelation chapter 1. And so here, he's in the midst uh, of the myrtle trees. He's concerned for Israel. In Revelation chapter 1, he's standing in the midst of the seven lampstands, which represents seven churches. And uh, a good outline that was used once many, many years ago that I heard was that he stands there in a place of, uh, it suggests he's cognizant, he's aware of what's going on in each local church. The letters express his concern over what's happening in each local church. And then his response, uh, called to repentance and the, the danger of having a lampstand removed, it suggests his control over the situation. And so we see that here, don't we? That uh, he is in the middle. He's aware of what's going on. He's concerned for, for Israel and certainly Uh, we know that he is in control. And so the dialogue continues in verses 12 down to verse 17 about Israel. And so there are good and comforting words uh, spoken in verse 13. If you look at uh, chapter 2, verse 5, there is again some comforting words. Uh, He goes on to talk about Jerusalem and his thoughts uh, for Jerusalem. And I'm returning, he says, in verse 16, to Jerusalem with mercy, my house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and so on. Uh, My cities shall spread out through prosperity. Uh, He will comfort Zion. Now, let me just say that Zion is a poetic phrase for Jerusalem. And so it's often used poetically. There's a hill, Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, but the phrase or the word Zion is often a poetic expression for the city of Jerusalem. And so uh, the Lord is saying, I'm not finished with Jerusalem. I'm going to deal with this, with this city. 
and I'm going to do these these things for it. And we'll see again in chapter 2, he has more to say about the city of Jerusalem. Now, of course, it's interesting in our world that, uh, you know, the ancient the claims of history and of antiquity that the Jews have for Jerusalem is uh, put down, is denied. Uh, an inordinate amount of, of uh, resolutions by the United Nations have been to condemn Israel more than anything else. Uh, they've condemned Israel. When we had Stephen Harper as our prime minister, he was Israel's best friend. Now Israel's best friend is a man in Washington that perhaps even trumps Stephen Harper. You know what I mean? And, uh, and so Israel does have a friend, but very few friends in this, in this world. And uh, they are, you know, they, they have control over Israel, but they have to be so careful in how they act and respond. But God says, I'm not finished uh, with them. And so this looks down through, uh, through the years. And he says, I'm going to do something with the city of Jerusalem. We'll talk more about Jerusalem in a few moments. But verse 18 uh, to the end of the chapter, he talks about these four horns and these four craftsmen. Now, he doesn't tell us the nations that the four horns represent. There's four nations represented in Daniel chapter 2 in that big image. You know, you have Babylon, you have the Medo-Persian, you have the Grecian, and then the Roman Empire. It doesn't say that these are those four empires. So this could be the Assyrians, it could be Edomites, it could be other nations that are involved here. But what God is, is saying is, I'm going to deal with those nations. Why? If you go back to verse 15, the end of that verse, it says they helped, but with evil intent. And so God used the nations. If you read the book of Habakkuk, that's what Habakkuk wrestled with. God says, uh, if anybody else told you this, you wouldn't believe it. But I'm going to use the Babylonians to discipline Israel. And he said, I know what they're like. And he describes uh, what the Babylonians are like. But the Babylonians overstepped their bounds. And so God ultimately brought judgment upon them. And that's what he's saying here. And then at the end of the chapter, he's saying these four craftsmen are going to break these horns. Horns in Scripture often represent power. And so these four powers that dealt with Israel, God is going to deal uh, with them. And so, God's not finished yet. So that brings us to chapter 2. Now let me just go back to something I said last week. When we approach uh, prophecy, unfulfilled prophecy, there are two major camps of uh, theological thought. And so there is the Reformed view, and there is what we call the dispensational view. In the Reformed view, uh, prophecy was literal up to the first coming of Christ. But now it's figurative. Uh, it's allegorical. And they mix, they merge the church with Israel. Uh, so in Reformed theology, the church would have started with Abraham and runs through the Old Testament as the Jewish church, and now it's a Gentile church. And so I looked up uh, under Ligonier Ministries what they would say about Zechariah chapter 2. And what they say about this is, yes, it's talking about Israel to start with, but at the end it's talking about the church. It's not Israel at all. It's God's blessing on the church. Remember last week I said you can see that if you had an Oxford edition of a King James 
top of the page, if it's bad things, there'll be judgment on Israel. The next page, if it's good things, there'll be blessings for the, for the church. Now, uh, in Reformed theology, uh, there is a word that is sometimes used called preterist. Preterist just means past. And so there are people, well, everybody in Reformed theology is, is to some degree a preterist. That is, they believe that most of New Testament prophecy and most of this type of prophecy is already fulfilled or being fulfilled. There are some who are what we call full preterists who believe that everything about Jerusalem was done and finished in AD 70. And that's it, it's over. There's nothing more. In fact, they believe the Lord came then. Uh, and now we are in what they would term as the benefits and blessings of the kingdom and the church is going to expand and fill the whole earth and that type of of things. So they'd be a full preterist. Now, most uh, reforms that you would perhaps know are partial preterists. So like the R- uh, late R.C. Spruill or John Piper uh, would be partial preterists, where most of it happened in AD 70, but there's still some of those things that are ongoing, uh, especially Revelation 6 to 19. Some of those things are happening today. And so Our view, a dispensational view, is no, God said these things to Israel. He's not finished with Israel. He's going to deal with Israel. He's talking about Jerusalem. He means Jerusalem. He he doesn't mean a heavenly Jerusalem. He means an earthly, visible, physical uh, Jerusalem. He's going to have a temple there, and he's going to rule and reign, and there's going to be a thousand-year reign of Christ. And so that would be our approach when we look at this. So if you were to listen, go to listen to John Piper talk on this, it would be very different than listening to Gary McBride. You'd say, well, Gary McBride didn't know what he was talking about, and uh, John Piper would explain it as, no, this is all to do with the church now and the blessings. So, for instance, just to break into chapter 2, he talks in verse uh, verse 8 about the apple of his eye. And so, obviously, in the context historically relating to Israel, but John Piper and Reform would say, well, no, that's God's people. It doesn't matter if it's the Old Testament or the New. It doesn't matter if it's Israel or the church. It's just God's people that are the apple of his eye. We would look at this and say, no, it's in the context of talking about Israel. And it's Israel that's the apple of his, of his eye. And so uh, let's read in chapter 2, verse 1. Then I raised my eyes and looked and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said, to measure Jerusalem, see what its width and what is its length. And there was the angel who talked with me going out, and another angel was running out to meet him, who said to him, run, speak to this young man. That's to Zechariah, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in the midst of her. Now, again, going back to guys like John Piper, they would say, well, this is the church. It's a, it's a city without walls, and it's expanded, and God is, is our glory. But I would suggest he's talking about Israel and Jerusalem's future. And he says that he will be a wall of fire around her. I will be a glory in her, in her midst. Uh, the Lord will again deal with the city of, of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is an amazing city. Uh, some of you have been to Israel and, and seen uh, Jerusalem. It's, it's a remarkable city. One of the things I've done on our tours is as we, you go past a checkpoint, you come up the Jericho Road, and you pass a checkpoint, and, vi- and Jerusalem's not visible. And then you go through a long tunnel. And so as we start through that tunnel, I put on the 
uh, in the bus over the PA system, I put on the Holy City. And then as we come out of the tunnel, the chorus starts, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, lift up your gates in praise. And so as we come through the tunnel, the chorus starts and the city is, is visible, the, the temple mount and the, the wall, the west, eastern wall, the eastern gate and all that. So it's a spectacular uh, sight, very sort of emotionally moving uh, thing as, as that chorus is sung and as you see uh, the city. But it's a divided city. As you walk through the old city, of course, you have the Armenian or Christian quarter, you have the Arab quarter, you have the Jewish uh, quarter, and you have police, uh, of course, at all sorts of intersections and corners, uh, just you know, watching over things, uh, directing things. But it's certainly not a city at, at peace. I mean, it functions well. I tell people, people you're safer in Israel than you are at a Walmart, right, in the States, because more shootings happen, happen here than happen happened there. But certainly uh, a city that, you know, Israel as a government, as a nation control, but in many ways they don't control it. They are, they are uh, captive to tourists and captive to other religious groups because if they offend somebody, they offended the Catholic Church and they said no more pilgrimages, uh, they'd be finished economically. And so they really are uh, captive uh, to, these, to these things. But what God is saying here. The Lord is saying is, no, Jerusalem is going to be uh, inhabited and he's going to be the glory in her her midst. And that's a wonderful thing. Uh, The word glory is a great word through scripture. Uh, Sometimes it refers to the person of the Lord Jesus, the person of God, his glory, who he is. When uh, Moses said in Ezekiel or Exodus 33, 18, show me your glory. God declared who he was. That was his glory, abundant in goodness, mercy, forgiving. And so that was the glory of God. But Moses came down from the mount with uh, another aspect of that glory shining uh, from his face. Uh, The Lord Jesus displayed that glory uh, well on earth. The glory, uh, what J.G. Bellick called the moral glories of the Lord Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. To see him was to see the glory of God uh, lived out. Uh, He talked about in John 17, the glory he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. But then he talked about the glory he would receive. And so glory is associated with this person, but it's also associated with with the city of Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. His glory will be there. There's an interesting phrase in Psalm 20. 29, it says, in his temple, everyone says glory, or every aspect of his temple says glory. Why? Because he occupies it. That should be true. To him be glory in the church. It should be true of us as well. And so, the last word of the book of Ezekiel, uh, not evident in our English translation, but is a compound name of the Lord, Jehovah Shammah, the Lord who is there. And that he will occupy a place in the city of Jerusalem. So verse 6, up, 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 flee from the land of the north, says the Lord, for I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven, says the Lord, up Zion, escape you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, he sent me after glory. Now that's a difficult phrase 
you could look it up in different translations. It, uh, it will occur or appear much different. To the nations that plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For surely I will shake my hand against them. They shall become spoiled for their servants. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Behold, for behold, I am coming. I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day. They shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. And so Jerusalem's future is assured and secure because the Lord's not finished with them yet. Now he talks uh, about escaping from Babylon at the end of verse 7. The, the scattering of the Jews, what they call the diaspora, the scattering, the spreading of the Jewish people over uh, the last two millennia has put them around the world. But interestingly enough, uh, anti-Semitism, that's hatred to the Jewish people. Uh, The word anti-Semitism comes from the name Shem. So Jews are from Shem, as are all Asians, and Arabs are from Shem. But in particular, uh, that word anti-Semitism is used to speak of hatred against the Jewish people. And it's It's interesting, isn't it, that all through history, from the time of Abraham on, there has been this hatred that can only be attributed to Satan, hatred of the Jewish people. And time and time again, there have been efforts to annihilate them, to wipe them out totally. In fact, it's an interesting thing. If you want to Google what happened to Jews on August 9th and 10th through history, that's the day in 586 and again in AD 70 on the same day of the year the temple was destroyed. That's the day Jews were expelled from England. That's the day the Inquisition started. That's the day the Holocaust started. So many things happened on that day. Uh, Jews have been expelled over history from 70, I think it's about 70 nations they've been expelled from. They've been forced into ghettos. They've been killed and ostracized so many so many ways and so many times, and yet God is not finished uh, with them. And he's going to come and uh, gather them together. Now, uh, what I was going to say about anti-Semitism, it's interesting that Jews are are going back to the land almost in record numbers. As anti-Semitism in Germany and France uh, and Russia uh, is sending them back. There, There are perhaps about 17 million Jews in the world today. Close to 7 million are now back in Israel. Uh, And so there's still 10 million more, many of them in the U.S., many of them around New York City, uh, but eventually they will come back. The Lord will bring them back to uh, the country of Israel. And the Lord will dwell there in their midst, he says. And that'll be a wonderful, wonderful thing. Jehovah Sham of the Lord who who is there. So when we look at this and we're reading it, I trust that you get the sense that this is what it means. This is the exposition. God is sovereign. He's in control. He knows what's going on. He's not finished with Israel and with Jerusalem. He's going to do uh, his, his work. But if you were reading this on a, in your morning devotions, you might say, well, what's in it for me? And last week we talked about the difference between the interpretation, the exposition, 
and an application. What's in here that I could think about that would warm my heart, that would encourage me uh, through the day? And I think there's several things. Uh, In this scene with the horsemen and what's going on and God's awareness of what's going on should be an encouragement to us as believers. Uh, He says in chapter 2, verse 13, "...be silent all flesh before the Lord." For he is aroused from his holy habitation. In Habakkuk 2.20, it says, Be silent, all the earth, for the Lord is in his holy temple or habitation. The Lord is there, the place of control. Now he's getting up. And so we can be comforted knowing, well, he's there, he's in control. Remember what Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar. He was going to be seven years uh, uh, sent out until he recognized something, that the Most High rules among the kingdoms of men gives authority or power to whomsoever he will, even the basest of men, that our God is in control. And so this should encourage us as we read it and we think of our world and what's happening around the world. uh, We can take comfort in knowing that God is sovereign. He's in control. He knows what's going on. I I enjoy politics. I I enjoy news. um, But I don't get bent out of shape. And I don't get flustered and all these things because why? Our God reigns. So, you know, I know what the end is. Uh, people talk about global warming. Is it going to happen? Yes. Read Second Peter chapter 3. <laughs> it's going to happen in a big way. So I don't get bent out of shape a lot of these things. I, I, I'm a news junkie, I might say. I, I like reading, and but I just recognize God is in control. And he's going to work out his will. And one day... We're going to be out of here, and uh, mankind can do what they want, but God is still sovereign and, and in control. And then also just his, his plan and purposes for Israel, and it is remarkable. Uh, the story, you know, these illustrations, you hear them. You know what, Mike would know this, and Don and others that preach. Sometimes a preacher says something, I heard this. And uh, they sort of don't know if it was true or not, but they, they give it as an illustration. And then the next time they, they use it, they said, you know, I said this before. And then the third time it says, as I always said. And that becomes truth and, and fact. And, uh, you know, you live on it. But anyway, I heard the story once that the elector of Hanover, the king, one of the princes in Germany, asked Nicholas von Zinzendorf, Count Zinzendorf, uh, a one-word proof for Scripture. What do you say? The Jew. You just look at the Jew. And that tells you that, that Scripture is, is true. Now, it's interesting. Uh, you know, the, the promise to Abraham, those that bless you, I will bless. Those that curse you, I will curse. Uh, just in our time, an interesting thought is that in 1972, there was the Arab boycott of, of goods from Israel. And most of Europe bought into it. Two countries didn't. Who knows what two countries refused to go to under that boycott? Britain and Holland. And what two countries discovered oil in the 70s? Interesting, isn't it? That's one of those circumstances, but both Holland and Britain became self-sufficient in oil. Uh, They ignored the boycott. They didn't condemn Israel. And so those sort of things you see uh, through history. And so again, it's encouraging. If God uh, keeps his his promises with Israel, we know for sure he's going to keep his promises Uh, for us. And so when you read it, those are things that you can 
sort of think of and dwell on. If Israel was the apple of his eye, they're precious to him. What about you and I? We're precious in his sight as well. And so um, be encouraged. You know, when you read, uh, sometimes you read these minor prophets and you think, well, it's not about me, it's not for me, it's not to me. But as you think it through, there are thoughts that can come to you. Uh, again, you know, you think of the angel of the Lord. And uh, think of when the Lord Jesus appears in the Old Testament. He always appears, it seems, to meet the need of the person at the time. So, for instance, to Abraham, he was a pilgrim. Abraham's a pilgrim, a stranger and a pilgrim. The Lord Jesus is just walking, walking by. To Jacob, who needs to have his bell rung, he comes as a wrestler, right, and wrestles the the pride out of him, the self-sufficiency out of him, alters his walk. To Joshua, going to fight a battle. How's he come? He comes as the Lord of hosts. To those men in the furnace, they didn't need a captain of the Lord's host. They needed somebody in the furnace with them. There he is in the furnace with them. And so in a devotional way, you can think too how the Lord has invested in us and would meet our needs as well. So keep in mind the difference between uh, interpretation, exposition, and application. What you enjoy out of it. It's very dangerous when people start preaching the application as the interpretation. You've got to keep those thoughts separate. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you again for your word. We uh, think of Israel and we think of all that they've been through through the centuries and we recognize even as we look in Zechariah, they still have a holocaust to come in the future. And yet uh, they are the apple of your eye and you made promises to them and you will fulfill those promises. And we thank you, Father, you made promises to us. We accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, a promise that there be no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, that we are justified by faith and we have peace with God. And so we thank you for these promises and the promise too that the Lord Jesus Christ will come again and will receive us to himself, that where he is, we may be there also. So encourage us as we think of your word, we spend time in it, help us to be excited as we read every day and look for uh, glimpses of you, look for glimpses of the Lord Jesus Christ that we might fall more in love with him. We commit ourselves to you in his precious name. Amen.